So this week for Parashat Breshit is one of my favorite Torah portions. And it's so hard for me to try to uh, narrow down because I get so excited that I want to talk about everything that has to do with Breshit. And even as I was working on uh, my sermon this morning, I ended up about halfway through it just hitting delete on most of it. Because I was thinking this is going to be way too technical, way too, <laughs> way, way too complicated. And I know my wife is going to tell me later that, you know, that was great, but why don't you just give people just a few nuggets to chew on? And so, <laughs> but what I really want to talk about today, well, actually, let me say something about Brayshit, and then we'll, then we'll get to what, <laughs> see what I mean, is, so in Brayshit, there's so much that you can say about the very opening line of this week's Torah portion. That often, even the way that we translate it and think about it in Hebrew is very, very different about the way that we think about it in English. So for example, what is the way that we normally translate this opening sentence into English? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that what it says in Hebrew? It doesn't say, when, when you say in the beginning, you're putting, I'm not going to wear you out with grammar, but <laughs> trust me, I'm not the grammar person, but where is the definite article in the opening of, of Genesis in English? Where's the definite article? On the, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What you are implying in English is that's the beginning. Hebrew doesn't ever imply it's the beginning. There's the definite article in Hebrew is on the heavens and on the earth. So the point is, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was void and, and it begins to unroll. And so when you understand that even the Bible talks about that there was something that existed before creation, God always existed. And what Genesis does is begin to unfold and tell this story. Sadly, most fundamentalists, when they read this Bible, they try to make this fit some kind of a preconceived scientific agenda, right? As though the Bible is trying to set out to give you a scientific explanation of creation, which it does not. I'm not saying that it doesn't necessarily conflict or whatever. That's not my point. My point is the Bible's more concerned with giving you a theological account of creation. The point is, is not to give you every detail exactly in how it happened, but simply to imply actually more than just imply, to state very clearly that everything that exists has its origins in God, right? The other thing that it sets out to do is it's very intent on the way that it uses words. And it uses the word for create is bara, right? There are two ways to talk about fashioning things or creating something. We have bore, which means creation from nothing. And then you have yotzer, right? Like when we say yotzer or right, that God fashions light and creates darkness. That there, so humans can yotzer. We can fashion things all the time. We can take one thing, like for example, a vessel. We can take clay and we can form that clay into something, put it in a kiln, fire it, and you get something else, right? We can do that all the time. We can take things and then fashion it into other things. And now in our modern age, we've gotten pretty good at that. What we can't do, though, is create something from nothing, right? It reminds me of a joke that there's this, uh, 
a scientist who wants to challenge God. And he says, God, we can do everything that you can do. And so I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we don't need you anymore. And God says, I see this as a, you know, an encouraging opportunity to teach. <laughs> so what we're going to do is you think that you can do everything that I can do. And now tech technology has evolved that you don't need God. So let's both create a person. And so, you know, God, like, you know, does the whole thing. He takes earth and he forms and he breathes life into it. And boom, there's a dude or a dudette. <laughs> And so then the scientist gets down, he starts to fashion the earth, and he said, no, 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 you got to make your own dirt. <laughs> the idea was that, no, 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 you don't get to start with nothing and end up with something, because you can't do that. Only God can do that. Even grammatically in Hebrew, you can never grammatically put a person, like humans, and the word bara together. It's grammatically incorrect, because people can't create anything. We can only fashion things. So when you understand that the, and I, this is just a taste of everything that we could talk about, of just the opening sentence of Genesis. But that's not what I prepared to talk about this morning. So instead, what I want to do is I want to look at our reading from the New Testament this morning, from John chapter 1, which begins with the same words and the same imagery. Breshit haya hadavar, v'hadavar haya et Elohim. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the, he was with God in the beginning, and all things came to be through him, and without him nothing made had being. In him was life, and the life was the light of humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. We then have an interesting break in the narrative with an introduction to John the Immerser. Now, this is intentional. It wasn't just like, oops, <laughs> I, well, I guess, you know, we'll just fit John in there and then get back to the creative narrative. There, that's a whole other sermon about why the connection of John is with this opening of the prologue in John's gospel. But instead, I want to keep this focus on this connection with the creation account in which it then, we then jump from after verse 5 into verse 14 when it picks up the narrative again. And the word put on, or it clothed itself, literally is what the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek says, the word became a human being and lived with us. And we beheld the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah of the Father's only Son. The word Shekhinah is this manifest presence of God, full of grace and truth, John witnessed concerning him when he cried out, this is the man I was talking about when I said, the one coming after me has come to rank ahead of me because he existed before me. We have all received his fullness, yet grace upon grace. For the Torah was given through Moshe. Grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. Um, the way you're not supposed to read this is that this is a juxtaposition, Right? That there was the Torah that had no grace and truth, and then all of a sudden Yeshua came, and now there's grace and truth. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the Torah came through a mediator, where now Yeshua is basically the embodiment of grace and truth, right? Torah came through Moshe, a mediator, and now it's saying that all of these things are now through Yeshua himself. No one has ever seen God but the only and unique Son, 
who is identical with God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this is obviously one of the most fascinating passages within the Basso wrote, within the Gospels. And one should be immediately hit by the imagery of creation and the intentional Im imagery and language of Genesis 1. This is no accident. And this is not just in English. In the Greek, the same thing happens. And also in Hebrew translations, this is the same thing. This is not an accident. Through a purposeful connection and similar, of similar use in language and themes, John is intentionally equating the creator of the universe with Yeshua, right? He's beginning immediately because the very first thing that people are used to, to hearing when you get to the beginning of a book, and in their mind, the book is the Torah, right? The very first thing is the creation account. So what John sets out to do in his account of Yeshua is to begin with the incarnation, a type of, of creation account, but his is a little different, but it's also connected. Therefore, we need to note, and I'm just going to give you a few examples because we would spend all day here if we tried to go over all of it. Let's please note the reference to Yeshua being present at and think in creation. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That the word was there. And don't just think present, think participating in creation. Also, the themes of light and darkness. That creation is brought forth through spoken words, right? And God spoke, and it was. Whether that happened literally or figuratively, I don't know how it happened, but the language the Torah uses is words. God spoke, and it happened. And John uses words also, hadavar. In the beginning was the word, hadavar. God separates between light and darkness, in the creation account, and Yeshua is described as the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. There is a separation between light and darkness. There are so many other themes and connections between these. Do you understand really what is going on here? It is so easy for us today to just gloss over all of this without really understanding the gravity of which this message would have had on its original Jewish audience. John is claiming, this is why people wanted to throw rocks at Yeshua. John is claiming Yeshua was not only present at creation, but equates Yeshua with the creator. He's saying they're one and the same. Furthermore, John's arrival at this conclusion was also not an accident. Not only was he per, a personal direct witness to Yeshua and his life and teachings, but he was clearly steeped within the messianic currents that already existed and were developing within Second Temple Judaism. It has often been assumed that John wrote from an entirely Hellenistic worldview and perspective. However, the better we understand the Second Temple period, the more we are able to appreciate John's theology and its consistency with broader messianic developments within early Judaism. This is especially true, for example, concerning the word that John uses for this word that we translate in English as the word, in Greek is logos. This is especially true, for example, concerning John's use of the term logos throughout his writings. Rather than drawing upon the often assumed Hellenistic use and imagery for this term, John's understanding is actually rooted in Jewish sources and thought. I wish that we had time to go into this, which I don't. But Daniel Boyarin 
from uh, the University of, Ber of UC Berkeley rightly likens John's prologue to early Midrash and proposes that it is conceivable to see the prologue of John together with its Logos doctrine as a Jewish text through and through. In fact, Boyarin explains the Logos of the prologue, like the theological Logos in general, is the product of a scriptural reading of Genesis 1 and Proverbs 8 together. So what he's basically saying is John didn't arrive at this by accident. The reason why he's able to talk about a word that became incarnate and that has a physicality to it is because this was a reading that already existed and we have evidence of that during the early centuries. That, that there were many Jewish commentators who would, in their interpretation of Genesis 1, they would apply Proverbs 8. What is Proverbs 8? It's the personification of wisdom. Wisdom cries out in the streets, right? Its whole description is of a woman, but the woman is a personification of wisdom, right? The point is not, that there is a development in the idea here, though, because Boyarin points to wisdom texts and hymns as aids in exploring his hypothesis further, noting that within certain wisdom texts, Proverbs 8, Proverbs 8 becomes important in the Jewish interpretive tradition of Genesis 1. That's what I said a moment ago. We don't have time to go into great depths into the specific technical background for John's introduction, but I want to unpack just a few more things, all right? First, the preexistence of Messiah is a Jewish concept. Commenting on the phrase, the Spirit of God hovered over the water, the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah states that the Spirit is Messiah, that it was the Spirit of Messiah that was there. According to Midrash Hagadol, the final goal of humanity is to attain the state of the days of Mashiach. Therefore, the name of Mashiach had to be formulated even before the world's inception. And the Talmud states that it was taught that seven things were created before the world was created. They are the Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehinom, which is the place of punishment that later people will call hell, the throne of glory, the temple, and the name of the Messiah. The name of the Messiah, as it is written, May his name endure forever. May his name produce issue prior to the sun. So because it says prior to the sun, the rabbis interpret that to mean that this had to exist prior to the sun. Furthermore, John's use of the term logos, as we mentioned ago, which he translates as word, is connected to the Aramaic concept of memra and the Hebrew word devar. And as I said a moment ago, and I've said multiple times, I wish I had the time to explore this in greater depths. But if you want more of all of this fun technical stuff, this is all covered in great depth in my new book on the letters of John, where I go into incredible depth talking about these connections. But as I'm, um, I was about to say a second ago, there's also a development in the thought here. It's not just connecting these things interpretively, and being able to see that wisdom became personified theoretically, the development is that this actually happened physically. That the, that the appearance of Yeshua was not an apparition, and it wasn't something that only happened in theory. It was something that happened practically. So even though we see the evolution in thought and theology clearly there, and you see the patterns of progression, the incarnation of the Messiah was just the next logical progression in the way the Jews were already thinking. It was a big step. 
But it wasn't a complete separation from what and the way many people were already thinking of the time. Again, all of this language is very intentional for John. So we talked about that the Messiah was there at creation, and even this concept exists within Jewish tradition. Even if they don't believe that it was Yeshua, the concept that the Messiah was existing as creation is there. But let's talk about light for a second. <laughs> One of the other major themes. The light that is being, being referred to in the creation account is the light of Mashiach. In Genesis 1-3, God states, let there be light, and there was light. If the sun and the moon were not created until the fourth day of creation, then what is the light that is being spoken of here, right? It says that God created, that God separated light from darkness, but it's not until day four that the sun and the moon and the stars are created. Does everybody get it, what the problem is? There's no problem, but what I'm saying is the way that you would sense from our human logical perspective that there's something going on here, right? Because how can you separate light and darkness if our perceptions of light and darkness are only physical? Instead, what it's saying is that God separated light from darkness, concepts that are much bigger than what we have and what we've always assumed. So there are two answers as to what this light is, traditionally within Jewish tradition. One answer, and I believe that they're both true, by the way, but there are two perspectives, and I believe they're both true. The first is, according to Yalkut Shimoni, a commentary, a medieval rabbinic anthology commenting on this verse states, and God saw the light that it was good. This is the light of the Messiah to teach you that God saw the generation of Messiah and his works before he created the universe. And he hid the Messiah under his throne of glory. Satan asked God, master of the universe, for whom is this light under your throne of glory? And God answered him, it is for the Messiah who is to turn you backward and in who will put you to scorn with shamefacedness. The idea is that God knew what the Satan would be up to, and he already had the answer. So the other answer is that the light is also a, a representation of what the mystics call Ein Sof. Ein Sof literally means without end, but in many other ways, it's a concept that is untranslatable. The idea is that we have two conceptions of God. Some are right, some are wrong. But really, there are two concepts. One is the one that's revealed to us in Scripture, right? An aspect of God in which is knowable, that we can have a relationship with, that we can know things about. But the reality is that's only a totality of what God is. Really, the bulk of what God is, it's kind of like a, um, you know, you've seen all the diagrams of icebergs where what you see above the water, as big and as powerful and as grand as it could be, is only, as they call it, say, the tip of the iceberg, right? That this thing could be massive, that you're not even beginning to see the influence of this thing under the water. So we need to be careful, the mystic state, then we, when we talk too definitively about God and having God all figured out and having God in our boxes. Because what God is and the totality of what God is, we can't even begin to comprehend that. That is the unknowable aspect of God. 
the part of God, as God told Moses, you can't, you can't really see me. You can see aspects of me. You can see what I'm able to reveal to you in your humanity, in your physicality, but you can't know the, the totality of who I am. Midrashic legend teaches that this light is hidden until the time of the Messianic age, after which it will be, be revealed once more. When this happens, it will be like in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where there will no longer be any need for the sun, for God's Ein Sof, his presence will provide all of that light, right? At creation, when it says that God separated light from dar darkness, God was the source of that light. But that light had to be hidden to some degree in order for creation to happen. And because we are human and we can't handle the, the totality of that kind of a spiritual impact, God had to give us artificial lights, fake lights, right? Because we can't handle the fullness of it. And what are our artificial lights? The sun, the moon, and the stars that were also given for other reasons, practical purposes and others. But at least according to our tradition and including the words of the New Testament, that a time will come in the messianic age where we don't need artificial light anymore because we can handle the full on, bring it on, right? We can handle the full effects of the presence of God. And so Revelation in chapter 21 and in chapter 2, 22 says there will no longer be a sun because the earth doesn't need the sun. Instead, God's presence will provide that light to the entire universe. Light reflects presence. When a light is on in a house, you know someone is at home. It's one of the things I love about lighthouses. I haven't been like totally into lighthouses, but there's an aspect of me that I've always found lighthouses fascinating. So I don't know everything, but there's an aspect of lighthouses that are interesting in that when the light was on, that's when you know not only that someone is there, but it's when there's a warning of what's going on, right? When you see the lighthouse, you know that there's, the lighthouse is sitting on something and you need to be aware. It is a guide in the darkness. When you can't actually see what is ahead, there is a lighthouse to guide the way. This is why John writes, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not suppressed it. This was the true light which gives light to the entire world. He was in the world. The world came to be through him. For the, world, for the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his shekhinah. This pre-existent Mashiach became flesh and dwelt among us. And through him was reflected the radiance of God's essence. The Torah of Hashem became a living being. That's what's so amazing as we've talked about before became the living Torah. When God's light is on, we know he is home and his presence is with us. It's important that we begin to read the words of our scriptures, especially the words of the New Testament as Jewish texts. Not just intellectually knowing that their authors happen to be Jewish, but that the entire context, content, and development is entirely from a Jewish perspective. Furthermore, as Colossians 1 states, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. It is through his son that we have redemption. That is, our sins have been forgiven. He is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He is, this, he is supreme over all creation because in connection with him were created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, lordships, rulers or authorities. They have all been created through him and for him. He existed before all things and he holds everything together. Also, he is the head of the body, the messianic community. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might hold first place of everything. What's exciting is we are the bearers of this message. John's connection of Yeshua with creation at the very beginning of his narrative clearly establishes that the redemption of Israel and the world is intimately bound up with the redemption of the cosmos. For as Colossians states, he holds everything together. One of my problems often with the way that most followers of Yeshua talk about salvation is it's, incre it's incredibly limited. It's boiled down to fire insurance, which is not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the redemption of Messiah will affect everything. The entire cosmos will be changed. Not only are we redeemed as individuals, but we're redeemed as people groups, as kingdoms, as a planet, as a cosmos. Everything in the universe will be affected by the Mashiach. This is not something that we should take lightly or it's something that we have to realize that we have a responsibility. Not only unto God, but into the world. And I know there are concepts with all of this that are difficult to grasp. But that's what faith is, right? It's not about always understanding it or having it figured out. Even in the times of our doubt, we take hold. I want to pray that God would bless all of us. That as we start this new cycle, as we start this new season, that God would be doing a deep and wonderful work within us. That a new creation would be birthed within us. Not only like when we first came to believe, but that it would be a new season, a new place, a new progression, a new anointing, new giftings, that God is going to birth within each and every one of you. And scripture says it's not for our sake. It's for the sake of the kingdom. It's for the sake of the world. We just get to be participants. <laughs> but I'd much rather just be a participant than miss out on it altogether. Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king, Rabono Shalolam, master of the universe. I pray that the gravity of your kingdom would really spark something within us this week. Not in a way that is oppressive or discouraging, but something that gives us that sense of awe that Heschel always talks about. That we would really sense the grandeur of your glory. That as much as we, we know you, that we would also have a holy reverence for recognizing there's so much about you I can't even begin to comprehend. And there's no way that I can put God in a box. God, I pray that you would do great things within us and that you would quicken our faith. Yeshua says, and I'm always convicted about, that if you would simply have faith the side of a mustard seed, you'd be able to move mountains. I know what the size of a mustard seed is, and it's pretty small. And if I don't even have faith that big, there's no way we're going to accomplish anything. 
God, help us to have faith at least the size of a mustard seed so that we can do great things for your kingdom, for your people, for the world, and even for the cosmos. Because we're supposed to be repairers, not only spiritually, but also physically in the world and with people. Help us to do your will and your work to prepare the way for the return of Mashiach. And may your light shine, not only in us and through us, but into the deepest recesses of our nishamot, of our souls. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Please rise as we conclude our service, or we begin to conclude our service.